Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The issue of climate change has brought to our attention an even deeper and more urgent agenda. It is not just that we are dependent upon diminishing unsustainable fossil fuels that are raising the temperature of the planet. In addition, we are becoming increasingly aware that the very nature of our economy is threatening in ways much more extensively than the temperature rise, the health, viability, and sustainability of the world. In our time in history, many of you, I'm guessing, believe that we have only two choices of economies, free market capitalism and communist socialism. As fundamentally different as these two approaches to the economy are, What most do not realize is that capitalism and socialism have something in common. That is, a commitment to economic growth. And it is that issue, economic growth, that is driving the threat to our planet. So we are in need now of reframing the question in light of our global threat. The question pressing on us is not capitalism or socialism, but rather Is there a viable alternative to growth-oriented economies? And yes, there is. This episode is the second in an ongoing conversation with folks who are offering that alternative. They refer to themselves as ecological economists and are calling their theory steady-state economics. I want to continue to introduce you to ecological or steady-state economics as a third and better option to what presently exists. My guest today is Dr. Brian Check. Brian is the founding president and currently the executive director of Center for the Advancement of the Steady-State Economy, or CASI for short. In addition to the book that we will be discussing today, Brian has also written The Endangered Species Act, History, Conservation, Biology, and Public Policy, and also Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, Errant Economists, Shameful Spenders, and a Plan to Stop Them All. He has edited Best of the Daily News, Selected Essays from the Leading Blog on Steady State Economics, 2010 to 2018. But the book we want to discuss today is Supply Shock, Economic Growth at the Crossroads, and the Steady State Solution. So welcome, Brian. Thank you for being with me today. Hi, David. Thank you. Let's begin by you giving us a brief definition of steady state economics, and then tell us your journey into becoming one of its leading advocates. Well, I think the easiest way to conceptualize a steady state economy is to think a little bit about economic growth, the trend that that we're all so familiar with. Uh, Economic growth entails increasing population and or per capita consumption, and it's measured with GDP. What's GDP? Yes, gross domestic product, which is the, uh, the value of all final goods and services produced in in a country in a year. And so, for example, the American GDP is, is currently about $17 trillion, and global GDP is approximately $80 trillion. 
And GDP has been growing ever since uh, the measurement was created in 1929. And, uh, and, and of course, if it had been measured before that, it would have been growing pretty rapidly ever since the Industrial Revolution. And so, okay, so that's, that's economic growth, growing population, consumption, GDP. And the opposite of that would, would be what we might call degrowth, or, you know, we know it in the nomenclature of recession. But if you can imagine that going on and on for a long time, well, that would be sort of the opposite of what history, uh, of the history that we've experienced in the last couple of centuries. And so the steady state economy is the alternative that's right in between. It's neither growing nor receding. It's stabilized. So it, it entails stabilized population and consumption. And all else equal, it would, it would be indicated by stabilized or mildly fluctuating GDP. How did you get involved in ecological or steady state economics? Well, David, you mentioned that one book uh, on the Endangered Species Act, and so my background was as a wildlife biologist. I had a uh, couple of decades that were just the, the greatest career out in the field working with, with wildlife, hands-on. Uh, and then I decided that I, I wanted to make a bigger difference for wildlife conservation at the national level. And so I went back to school for a PhD and I did a policy analysis of the Endangered Species Act for my dissertation. And as part of that research, I was looking at the reasons for all of these species being listed as, as threatened or endangered. Uh, and at some point after developing this database with all of the federally listed species and all of the causes for their demise, it just struck me that the list of causes was like a who's who of the American economy. And so the next step in that policy analysis was to look at the, the, the prospects for the Endangered Species Act to be successful given the socioeconomic context. And, and I noticed you know, there were a lot of policies set for economic growth and this was back in the 90s, and you and, and some of your listeners may recall, there was very prevalent rhetoric at the time in politics, and it was the rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. And that used to drive me nuts because, you know, I was writing all about the fundamental trade-off between growing the economy and conserving these species. So it turns out I ended up having to, to go into that topic whole hog, you might say. And, uh, and eventually I became more of an ecological economist than a wildlife biologist. And so by now, most people think that I'm an ecological economist. And you know, my career as a wildlife biologist is, uh, has been over for some time. I still was employed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service until 2017, uh, but I have to tell you, I was very much suppressed. I, they, I was not allowed to even talk about this topic. I had a gag order 
basically, that prohibited me from discussing the conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation. So finally, I just quit and, and I'm working full-time for Cassie, as you mentioned. And, uh, and that's our job is to raise public awareness of the trade-off, not only between economic growth and wildlife, but also between economic growth and long-term economic sustainability and national security and international stability. You know, economic growth threatens all of those things in the long run. And frankly, it's not that long of a run from now. It's in the process of impacting each of these very important goals. You said that capitalism and socialism are the same and that they are both growth economies. How do these differ from what you advocate? It's a bit like comparing apples to oranges because capitalism and socialism, you might call those uh, models of political economy. Those are, are systematic arrangements that combine various elements of politics and economics. Our focus at CASI is on one primary goal, which is stabilizing the size of the economy. And technically, that can happen in a capitalist economy or in a, a socialist economy. Well, what I like to remind people in the U.S. is that this is no laissez-faire capitalist system. We, we live pursuant to the American Constitution, which established a relatively capitalist democracy, but with a capital D on the democracy. And by now, you know, we have things like Social Security and Medicare, national forests, all types of uh, recognition in our political economy that the market can't handle everything. So what the market does good is allocate things like loaves of bread and nuts and bolts and automobiles, you know, the goods that are, well, what an economist would call rival and excludable. It does not handle the public interest. That's why we have to have a, a defense department and the military, certain things like national security and, uh, and going again back to things like national forest, wildlife. These things are not allocated properly by the market because there are too many externalities and uh, too many systematic uh, ways in, in which the market can handle, can handle these types of resources and goals. So, and, and conversely, in a socialist economy, uh, or uh, you, you mentioned before a, a communist socialism, you know, that's like the other end of the spectrum from laissez-faire. If you had a Soviet-type politburo doing all the central planning. Um, and the Cold War, what the Cold War was all about was the United States capitalist democracy in a struggle with Soviet communism. And guess how the score was kept? It was kept in terms of GDP. So these two very different models of political economy, capitalist democracy and 
and communist socialism were in a race for GDP growth. And so it wasn't sustainable for either one. And in fact, it, it, it uh, created a very, very unsustainable global pattern of pulling out all the stops for economic growth. You talk about the difference between an empty versus a full earth. Explain that for us. Well, just like it sounds, if you can envision, let's let's take the United States uh, before it really was, before it had many states. Let's say when Lewis and Clark were uh, at the along the Missouri River, looking across the river and ready to explore the the West. That was a fairly empty landscape. Uh, in terms of what we think about these days as the economy, you know, it didn't have it didn't have a lot of industry, it didn't have services and all that. You know, I, I think we do always have to to remember though that for Native Americans, it wasn't empty. You know, it was their land before Europeans were even in what's what is now called North America. So I think it, it always uh, is something that, that we need to be uh, aware of and, and sensitive about. Uh, but in terms of how we view a modern economy with all of its agro extractive and manufacturing sectors from the heaviest to the lightest and, and the vast array of service sectors, well, the American West was relatively empty at that time. And if you go back far enough in time, of course, the whole world was empty. Uh, now, with that $80 trillion global economy, there are very few places on the planet that don't look crowded in, in some respect. I mean, you might think that there are, there are places where there aren't too many settlements and not a, not a lot of... Uh, manufacturing and services, but every square inch of the planet has now been affected by, by various types of economic activity because pollutants tend to circulate in the atmosphere, in the water cycle. Um, those, those processes in particular, and yes, the climate change part, that, that's just a part of it. But uh, it certainly had the $80 trillion global economy has had a tremendous impact on the biological diversity of the planet, in addition to the, the physical and chemical cycles of the planet. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, cattle in a pasture. Once that pasture is full, you can't keep shoving more and more into it. Once that economy is full, once the world is full of the economy, you can't shoving, keep shoving more and more economic activity onto it. So that's the basic distinction. Um, you know, there's a principle in microeconomics that applies just as well in macro. It's the principle, it's called the when to stop rule. And when the, the marginal returns from investment uh, are no longer positive, well, it's time to stop investing. And when the, when the problems caused by more economic growth are bigger than any of the solutions uh, that, that stem from economic growth, well, then it's time to stop economic growth because 
by definition, it's, it's causing more problems than it's solving at that point. Do you think the world is full? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, when you think of the types of threats that the planet, and this this isn't a tree hugger issue. This is all about the planet's capacity to support humans, to support further economic activity. And when you see biodiversity dwindling away, dropping very dramatically, the sixth great extinction, they call it. And when you see global climate changing so so apparently, so obviously at this stage, those are like two loud canaries in the coal mine for human prospect going forward. And those are those are only two things. There are so many problems today, the congestion, the noise, the stress, the the international strife, the competition for resources. You know, when you look at the the history of warfare, it's hard to find a single example of a major war that started uh, where where there wasn't some major uh, motivation about this or that resource. You know, whether it's water in the Middle East, uh, oil in the Caspian Basin, uh, minerals in different countries in Africa. Uh, you know, well, think of the big one. Think of World War II. Uh, I, I hate to bring this up, but recall that the opening doctrine of that war was Lebensraum, living room. You know, it, it was recognized that there wasn't enough room anymore in Germany for the aspirations that that they had at the time for economic expansion. So they went east and took that land to be able to have that space to grow the economy. Yeah, it's it's very much a, a matter of international stability and therefore national security when we're talking about a full world versus an empty world scenario. One of the points you make relates to the place of agriculture and land in the economy as distinguished from labor. Explain this. Well, if you've ever looked at an introductory business book or or economics book, you'll see this thing called the production function, which says that production is a function of capital and labor. And yeah, so where's the land in that? And that production function, it's, it is very much a central concept for the building of economic growth theory in, in mainstream economics. And it's sort of like a lens that you look at the process of economic growth through. So it's a paradigm. And the, the production function, it hasn't included land since oh, the early part of the 20th century. And this is a long, sordid tale, frankly, that I, re- that I wrote about in that book, Supply Shock. I actually think that it is partly or largely a result of a political backlash against a fellow by the name of Henry George from the late 1800s, who had proposed a uh, a single tax on land as the way 
to obtain public finance in the U.S. So there wouldn't have been income taxes. Um, there wouldn't have been capital gains taxes. The, the, main, the, the, the big tax for federal uh, public works would have been on land, in other words, on the landlord. And so there was a tremendous backlash against that movement that really affected how the American uh, economics profession, starting in academia, developed from there. And that's when you start to see land sort of marginalized as a topic in mainstream economics. You know, if you look back at the what they call the classical era or with the classical economists like Adam Smith and, and John Stuart Mill and David Ricardo, they talked all the time about land, labor, and capital, land, labor, and capital. So how did we get to that where today all of our business books and econ books say nothing about land. They say production is a function of capital and labor. That's why the, the, the theory that, that I developed in part of that book, Supply Shock, is about the corruption of economics, how land was dropped from the production function. Explain that a little more for us. Well, so... Then all of a sudden you're living in a totally different world when you say that production is a function of land, labor, and capital. Then you have to look across the landscape and compare the, the ratio of how much land do you have, how many people do you have, and how much capital is there, how much manufactured or physical capital and financial capital. And when you start recognizing that for hundreds of years now, the proportion has, has been so systematically skewing away from land, such that land is becoming a, a more and more precious. And not just land as in the amount of space, but the quality of that land, the quality of the soil, the quality of the water. And that even includes the integrity of the climate and the biodiversity. We need healthy land at the very base of the economy for the agricultural activity and for the natural resource extraction uh, that feeds all of the rest of the economy from the bottom up. In the scenario of economic growth, in an empty world, especially with economic growth, you can get away with the old metaphor that a rising tide lifts all boats. Remember that? That was the, yeah, that's another uh, bit of growth rhetoric for decades. And that is also the argument against redistribution. But now when you look at land as a limiting factor for further economic output, uh, you realize that the rising tide, uh, where are you going to get more water? And where are you going to get more materials for building these, these boats, you know, these metaphorical boats? And how are you going to fit all the boats on the water? So it's a, it's a very good metaphor, not only for economic growth, but also for a steady state economy. A rising tide did lift a lot of boats during the 20th century. Now, the tide can't rise any further sustainably, and we have to look at 
all the boats out there on the water, some of them are practically sinking now. So we should help them. And on the other hand, there are massively uh, wealthy uh, owners of yachts out there, of whole fleets of yachts. So it's, I think most Americans see very clearly that it's not fair, the, the current system, uh, in terms of the, the, the misallocation or, or the, the uh, skewed distribution of wealth and income. And so we don't have to do anything dramatic. You know, it, going back to the old comparison between the American capitalist democracy and the Soviet Politburo, there's no, no uh, call here for establishing the latter and giving everybody the exact same income or anything crazy like that. It's just some common sense things. Like my, my proposal is for a 15, uh, 15 times sectoral salary cap. It's similar to the NFL, uh, to the NFL model of the salary cap, although that one, it, it's not the greatest example because it's very unsustainable when you think about the types of salaries, the amounts of those salaries. But the concept would be similar. You have an overall cap, and then the, uh, you know, the employers within that sector operate within that cap. I'll say one more thing about that. What that does is it combines a great deal of free market activity with common sense sustainability principles. You discuss how the laws of thermodynamics relates to the nature of economics. Help us understand that. Well, so that's the, that is sort of like the central scientific element of steady state economics. Laws of thermodynamics and the basic principles of ecology that are that are associated with those laws of thermodynamics. You know, I tell you, the laws of thermodynamics are a mixed blessing for steady state economics because on the one hand, they are the, the uh, most solid scientific principles in all of economics, whether it's conventional, neoclassical, Marxist, Georgist, whatever, communist, capitalist, any sort of economics, you can't get uh, harder science than you do with laws of thermodynamics. And so we have that uh, to our benefit in steady state economics. On the other hand, they're very bad for elevator talks. You know, a lot, a lot of people have never studied the laws of thermodynamics, and when you, when you dive deeply into them, you can rapidly get into some incredibly dense uh, philosophical and mathematical discussion. But let's put, it, let's put these, the laws of thermodynamics very simply for, for the, the listeners, and it's it's really only two laws, the first two laws of thermodynamics that are so important. Uh, the first one, that matter can be neither created nor destroyed. So you can't wave a magic wand and come up with some material. It's very much common sense. 
the second law of thermodynamics, the entropy law, uh, to put it in the simplest terms, it means that you can you can't ever get 100% efficient. And that makes common sense too. You run an engine, a gas engine, no matter how uh, how conscious you are of conserving when you run that engine, there's always going to be some waste heat and there's going to be some exhaust. So material and heat uh, waste, that those are those are inevitable because of the entropy law, the, the second law of thermodynamics. So taken, taken together, the law, those first two laws of thermodynamics tell us that there absolutely is a limit to economic growth. You can't produce something from nothing, and you can't count on getting ever more efficient. You can't even get 100% more efficient. I mean, you can't even get 100% efficient much less more than 100% efficient because then you'd be violating the first law as well as the second law of thermodynamics. Let's go back to your claim that both the political left and right agree that you can both grow the economy while protecting the environment. The laws of thermodynamics that you've just explained seem to go against that claim. It absolutely goes against what they both say, yes. And, and But you're talking about politicians and political parties, conservative and liberal. That's right. They both latch on to this win-win rhetoric that, well, like they, like they used to say so uh, noticeably in the 90s, there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. When everybody could see it with their own two eyes, if they just looked around on the landscape. Um, so I don't think that this should be any big surprise. We have all kinds of tall tales told from left and right at this stage in American political history. It's really pretty sad. And this whole notion about having your cake and eating it too, having your, your economic cake while you, you know while you're eating the environmental base of it it's it's just wrong and it's a it's a tall tale that's told from both sides the notion of a win-win kind of brings to my mind a book by uh, michael braungart and william mcdonough called cradle to cradle remaking the way we make things and if i understand it correctly in their approach uh, they're saying that, that nature is sustainable because it's essentially cyclical, that the waste of one thing is able to be the resource of another, uh, and that if we were able to uh, learn from that and, and design things in a way uh, that does the same thing, where the waste of one industry becomes the resource of another, uh, then we would be able to have a sustainable uh, environment, but at the same time, we wouldn't have to negate. Um, we wouldn't have to negate growth. Uh, that it would be kind of a win-win. And so, I didn't know if you knew of that and and what you thought of how that relates to steady state. That's exactly what the steady state economy is: is a balance between what we might call the economy of nature and all of those non-human species out there and all of the ecological integrity. It's a balance between how much of that we save and the amount of human economic activity. Now, the people that you're talking about, like McDonough and uh, 
that propose these qualitative improvements, well, in theory, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem comes when they also try to claim that that's going to result in perpetually growing GDP. Uh, because the, the secret to making things like new technologies with, with, uh, with subjectively, uh, with, with higher quality, which is a very subjective judgment, by the way, but let's, let's call it for the sake of, you know, the, the terminology that, that they use, higher quality goods or services. The, the secret there is to replace the older and less uh, lower quality goods and services, not to build upon them to, to grow the GDP. If you do that, uh, you're not, you're not uh, producing a sustainable path. You're still uh, moving upward toward that unsustainable carrying capacity. Yeah, you have to think for a moment about how how new technology comes about and how these higher quality goods and services come about. It's not like manna from heaven. You know, these things take tremendous amounts. At this point in history, these improvements take tremendous amounts of research and development. People have probably heard about what economists being so mystified about why the slowdown in productivity gains. Why isn't productivity increasing like it used to in the, you know, from like nine, from the end of World War II all the way up to the end of the 20th century, when GDP would grow by three, four, five percent a year, and productivity gains reflected that. I mean, GDP reflected the productivity gains. Well, I'll tell you why, and a, and a good steady-state economist can tell you why. It's because the low-hanging thermodynamic fruits have all been picked. We've, you know, we've taken the easy sources of energy and natural resources required at the base of the economy to have the surplus agricultural and extraction uh, so that other people can be doing things like manufacturing and like research and development. Now, the research and development can only be applied, conversely, to so many things. And when we have this full world economy, it's not like there, there's an infinite uh, area on Earth to apply the results of research and development. So it's not... It's not uh, at all paradoxical about why these productivity gains haven't been increasing. Despite all of the, you know, all of the efforts of the McDonough's and the, the Lovins and uh, the various authors and, and uh, think tankers out there about increasing quality with research and development. One of the things you discuss is the notion uh, that some hold that you can actually spend your way out of unsustainability. Uh, kind of explain that a little bit for us. <laughs> well, that you know, that's that is one of these unfortunate relics of the old win-win rhetoric. Uh, but that is 
one of the most problematic concepts of all because spending obviously requires money. And as I described at some length in supply shock, money originates once again at the base of that economy. It, it comes out of the agricultural and extractive surplus that frees the hands for the division of labor into the manufacturing sectors from the heaviest to the lightest and into the service sectors. And it, so money itself is not at all like manna from heaven. It, it represents real physical, biological activity at the base of the economy. Just think about that for a minute. It, if there's no agricultural surplus, what good is money? It's no good, doesn't do anybody any good. Everybody then will be out in the dirt, scraping up a living, or maybe raiding somebody else's camp. You know, there we go back to the war issue again. If you want money, there has to be a, enough of an environment at the base to allow for the agricultural surplus that frees the hands for the division of labor and for the marketing of products and for the spending of the money. Okay, so there's so much that we haven't been able to cover, but let me see if I understand by summarizing a bit. Ecological or steady-state economics is a necessary alternative to growth economies because contrary to the claim that you can grow the economy while sustaining the ecology, there is, in fact, a trade-off, not only between economic growth and the ecology, but also between economic growth and long-term economic sustainability, national security, and international stability. What ecological or steady-state economics seeks to do is to stabilize economic consumption. And one aspect of being able to do that is to re-include land and the ecology back into the thinking of economic policy. That on the one hand, ecological or steady-state economics is not a choice between capitalism and socialism because these are both measured by the growth of gross domestic product. But on the other hand, steady-state economics is capable of being compatible with both capitalism and socialism, so that any existing country's economy is able to both adapt and adopt steady-state or ecological economics. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so even though we don't have time to discuss it now, because we've been focusing on an overview of ecological or steady-state economics, in your book, you actually provide a roadmap of sorts of specific components in a policy program if the United States were to embrace ecological or steady-state economics as a goal. So hopefully you will agree to be my guest again so we can talk more specifically and concretely about what an ecological or steady-state economy would look like for our country and what policies would be involved in realizing that goal. Well, I think you did a very good job right at the end there of summarizing our, our time together here today. I really do. You hit the main points, and, uh, and maybe that's the main point of all, is that steady state economics isn't about 
capitalism versus socialism. We think at CASI, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, which was born in the USA, you know, we do have chapters uh, around the world, but it's, it's primarily still an American organization. And we think that a steady state economy is totally uh, host, hostable, can, can be hosted by uh, the American Constitution. We think the American Constitution is very much conducive to a steady state economy. So yeah, I would I would look forward to talking with you further about policies and programs and other concepts related to the steady state. Well, thank you, Brian, for being with me today. And I very much look forward to talking with you again. You've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth